Thank you very much. Excuse my informality. A bait of a recital is a sweaty affair. Uh, yeah, so I would love to, to talk with you about, uh, it could be Beethoven generally, but I thought probably specifically about this program, so happy to take questions. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question. Uh, I'll just repeat it in case people didn't hear. What is it about Opus 26, which is the sonata that opened the second half that attracted Chopin's attention? Because Chopin, um, unlike most of the great composers of his era, claimed not to like Beethoven. Um, but this was one piece that he admitted to liking. And uh, it's interesting, obviously, that this sonata has a funeral march. And he himself, Chopin, then wrote famously a funeral march sonata. Maybe this was the inspiration. I want, you know, it's just a hypothesis, but Opus 26 is the first of Beethoven's sonatas to really be, um, in a sense, free form, to sort of depart from a very classical convention. It starts with this glorious set of variations. It's, I, I think it would have been a shock to that audience that instead of a sonata allegro, it begins in this leisurely way. Um, and I think, may, you know, maybe, um, Chopin liked the slight unconventionality of it. I also think, and I, I have to be very careful about how I phrase this, there is this notion that Beethoven didn't write beautiful melody, which is nonsense. Um, but the, there is something particularly songful and beautiful about Opus 26's first movement, and I think maybe that aspect of it also, Chopin who had you know, this incredible gift for bel canto on the piano, um, he probably would have appreciated that. So that's, it's, it's all guesswork, but that's the best I can do. Could I ask you, rather than playing, uh, how, if at all, you listen to these sonatas? Do you listen to lots of uh, other interpretations? Do you, uh, do you still listen to them? Do you, uh, do you take on board ideas from others? Do you say, yes, you know, I like that, I think I'll, 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 I'll pinch that, or uh, no, I, I, that's not the way to do it. Or do you, and, and do you think that, you, do you listen to some where you think, well, that's not how I would want to do it, but actually, yes, I rather like that, I can see that. How, how do you listen to these yourself? Yeah, it's very interesting. So I, I, first of all, I should say, while I'm working on and performing a piece, I really try not to listen. And my, I, I said this yesterday, I had a, we had a kind of a pre-concert talk yesterday, it's kind of a joke and it's kind of not a joke that I'd rather commit my own sins than perpetrate someone else's. Um, and I, I, I guess the other way I, I could put it is that um, I think what I want most um, to be able to do in a concert is to convey a relationship between me and the music that's honest, sincere, um, and unselfconscious. And the more I am comparing myself or my ideas against someone else's, the more likely I think I am to let that self-consciousness creep in. But having said that, I've spent my life listening to live performances and recordings of these pieces. Many of them have been incredibly inspiring to me. Some of them I listened, in the case of recordings, some I listened to so many times, I'm sure that performance is etched into my mind and is in some way part of my conception of the piece, even if I would rather it not be. Um, and to answer the other part of the question, yes, I've absolutely had the experience uh, with Beethoven and with any music of go hearing a performance and, and s thinking, I would not do that, but it was incredibly powerful. You know, I think, again, 
if I listen to something and I can understand how the person came to the decision, I, I'm usually convinced by it, even if I would maybe come to a different one. I really enjoyed the uh, courses you put on Coursera on uh, the Beethoven sonatas. I'm wondering if uh, the process of developing those courses influenced you in some way in terms of, because you were explaining to an audience, did it, was there the kind of reverse in terms of that process influenced how you viewed those sonatas and how you've interpreted them? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think every kind of teaching that I have done has had an influence on my playing. I think, like most musicians, so much of what I do is, first of all, by instinct. Um, and even before I started giving the Coursera class, when I started teaching my own students, it was such a thing to sort of have to say why, you know, to, about a lot of things that I had just done really pretty much unthinkingly in my whole life. And it forced me to ask myself a lot of different difficult questions. Like sometimes I, I, had, I had to distinguish between the things I thought, well, yeah, that's really essential to the piece. You need to, that, you can't not do that and still be faithful to the music. And then realize that other things were just very personal and I should let, let the student go their own way and not impose my own maybe bad idea on them. Um, and in terms of the Coursera class, Yes, it was knowing that some of the, you know, I never saw the faces of the students, they were recorded in video, but knowing that many of the people had no exposure to Beethoven, it forced me to kind of go to the, the core and to say, what, what, what are the things about Beethoven generally that someone has to know? You know, what are the things about this piece that are fundamental, you know? And that really kind of, I think, focuses one's mind and energy in a certain way. And like, you know, because with one of these sonatas, you know, my lectures are usually like an hour long. I could, you know, you could, you could talk for like a year and you would just scratch the surface. And so making those choices, like this is essential, this is maybe not, that, I think that probably, like I couldn't tell you, well, now I play that F sharp louder. That, like it's not that concrete, but I think in a sort of, in a, in a deeper way, it, it definitely has had an effect. First off, thank you for just the Corsair courses and all these incredible performances. They've been such an influence on so many lives. Um, what's known... Thank you very much. What's known about uh, uh, the audience's reactions in those days? I mean, like that last piece is just so incredibly powerful. I mean, how in the world did they swallow that in those days? Yeah, it, you know, they, these pieces weren't really performed, which I think is, obviously it's, it's so tragic, right, to think that the contemporary audiences were deprived of it, but I think in a sense it has to do, has something to do with how Beethoven was able to dream so large, to imagine something so vast. I mean, I think, if he had had the pressure of knowing, oh, pianists need to be able to play this and audiences need to be able to understand it, I wonder if it might have hemmed his imagination in. You know, they were, sometimes they were played in little, you know, salons, but they were not played in, in what we would call, a, in anything that looked, looks like this uh, in Beethoven's lifetime, except for Opus 101, that was the only one that was played. Um, and I think that's a kind of a major difference between the sonatas and, for example, the symphonies, which were played. And I think it's maybe why the symphonies, as great as they are, don't go as wild. They don't go as far. They don't venture from norms in the way, in the really astonishing way that the, the sonatas and the string quartets do over and over and over and over 
and over again. Um, but I think, I mean, if you read sort of reviews of, um, of new works, because, you know, p um, scores were, were reviewed in those days by musical journals. I mean, they, yeah, people thought it was insane. Um, and that's even before the late pieces like the Grosse Fugue and the Hamaclever, which really are insane. I mean, it, er, earlier already they thought, well, this is, this is too far. So I don't, yeah, I think Beethoven was the kind of genius who, it, it, was, it was more than his own era could really digest. Uh, and thank God he didn't care. <laughs> yes, thank you for the Coursera courses too. But I had a question about whether there's a special challenge in preparing and performing the early sonatas. Yes, I would say so. I think, um, and it's interesting, I've talked to a lot of people who play in string quartets who say also that the early quartets are in a certain way maybe the hardest. I think maybe, and it's hard to generalize because every one of these pieces is so different, but the early sonatas demand a kind of classical clarity, much like Haydn or Mozart, but they're stuffed so much more, with so much more stuff. <laughs> what, a, what gorgeous prose, excuse me. Um, <laughs> after a concert, I'm telling you. Um, th th then, you know, Mozart or Haydn sonatas where there's just so much happening, but it needs that same kind of cool laser beam clarity. And I think that combination is, you know, offer, presents a lot of challenges. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the personality of Beethoven I find to be remarkably similar from early to late, even though the language changed. But I mean, you hear in this, for me, Opus 2, number one, the other Opus 2 sonatas even more, but even in Opus 2, number one, the slow movement has this kind of idealistic, you know, looking at infinity quality that you know, is so much about the late pieces. So there, there is a definite through line all the way through, but the, but the early pieces, um, yeah, I think maybe they just need a, a a kind of directness, which is, in a funny way, harder to do than when the music goes more like that. Hi, first of all, thank you very much. Um, why did you decide to interpret the F minor sonata with so much right pedal? It's an interesting interpretation, especially in the third movement. The F minor sonata. Um, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, pedaling is kind of like breathing. You know, you do it when you have to. Um, so it it uh, it varies from phrase to phrase, from performance to performance. But I, I guess if I had to answer in a kind of a general way, I think it's a very very Sturm und Drang piece. Um, it's um, the the kind of the the drama of it is almost like a is theatrical even and in a sense, maybe, um, you know, the, the, a kind of a full um, sonority, which involves feet as well as hands, maybe is somewhat involved with that. In answering the question about uh, Chopin's admiration for Opus 26, you mentioned the piece's song-like character, and that made me wonder, does anyone know if Schubert also really liked that piece? Um, the opening even kind of reminds me of D935. Or uh, that's interesting. Uh, I haven't heard a record of whether Schubert knew it, but... I mean, Schubert studied Beethoven very closely, and um, I've always thought that the second movement of Opus 90 was a big influence to Schubert, um, and there's, it's a very interesting case, the Sonata Opus 31, number one, the last movement is like very, very clearly the model for uh, the last movement of Schubert's late A major sonata. I mean, it's totally different in character, but phrase, it's like the theme comes in the right hand, and then the theme comes in the left hand, and the theme comes in, it's like all the way through, it's 
phrase by phrase. So, I mean, clearly, Beethoven, Schubert made a real study of Beethoven. Uh, so it's entirely possible, but I um, don't. I haven't seen a record of Schubert having had anything to say. But Schubert wrote 965 pieces in 31 years. He didn't have a lot of time to n make notes about what he was and wasn't listening to. Yeah, thank you for a very nice concert, by the way. Thank really you. enjoyed it enormously. So these pieces that you've played tonight, they cover a 10-year period in Beethoven's musical development, shall we say. So I wonder how you would describe or articulate how he developed as a composer in those 10 years, and perhaps how he developed as a pianist. Do you find that there are new challenges coming mm. with the slightly later pieces in this uh, set of sonatas that you played tonight, or, or, or not? Um, yeah, so I think there are a few... Uh, major points in terms of how he um, how he developed as a composer and as a uh, writer for a piano. Uh, I think the, the sonatas up to opus 22 are conventional in terms of form. They're not conventional in every way, but they're conventional in terms of they, they Haydn and Mozart would have recognized them as piano sonatas. <laughs> um, and from opus 26 on, there would, in, in this Concert, there were two of the sonatas from that period, 26, and then the Quasi Una Fantasia, Opus 27, number one, where he really, it's clearly like a, like a conscious choice. I'm, I'm going to really reimagine what a piano sonata can be, look like and be shaped like. And actually, all of the, there are four in that group. There's these two, then the next one is the Moonlight, if we must call it that, and then, then there's the Pastoral after that. And they're all really major reimaginings of what a sonata can be. Um, and then I think one of the big stories of Beethoven's evolution, and um, uh, this will get into the question of how the Waldstein is new, is that early in life, uh, the pieces begin heavier and grow lighter. And by the end of his life, um, it's really exact, precisely the opposite. I mean, you look at 111, which ends with this monumental statement and or you look at the Hammerklavier which has the longest and greatest slow movement I think ever written tied then to this craggy massive fugue it's like 27 minutes of music as a unit at the end of the piece um, and so that's he really totally reversed the the model and I think the the Waldstein is really kind of a huge pivot point in that way because you feel I think you feel when it starts, even though it's pianissimo at the bottom of the piano, you feel that this is an enormous structure coming into being, but it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds right the way to the end. And I think it's the first sonata where, if you consider the introduction part of the last movement, that's the longer movement, you know, and that, that was totally new at that point. Um, so that's, I think, one of the major things that changed. And then the other thing I would just say in terms of uh, of his development, I mean, it's a huge topic, but just to give some major points, is that I think you can hear in the early period that this was a person who wanted to prove himself. You can hear the desire to be impressive, pianistically impressive, compositionally impressive. He says, I, look, look at all the ideas I have. And while, I mean, obviously the later pieces are as full of ideas, there's less and less interest, I think, in the in kind of that external aspect, you know. It's it's more personal kind of exploration each time out. Um, so that's, I think, that feels very, very different. And I felt, I was conscious of it tonight, even playing 
the Waldstein is by no means a late piece, but that felt really different from the earlier ones. And when I play, you know, you start Opus 109, and it feels like a private communion in a way that I wouldn't say is the case in the early pieces. Uh, thanks for that exciting performance of the Waldstein. Sticking with the Waldstein, um, I mean, with Beethoven, he's such a genius, you, you find yourself having to describe some masterpieces as even greater than other masterpieces. Mm. And the Waldstein, as you said, is a pivotal point. The last movement in particular, it's so uplifting, but at the same time, it's got this tremendous threat of conflict underneath yeah. it. A lot of it seems to come from the rapid figuration in the left hand, mm. because you've got the relatively um, Corolle-like tune in the right hand. And what at first is a perfectly positive accompaniment in the left hand kind of gets out of hand. Yes. Yeah. And it's almost as though Beethoven is expecting the pianist to be two different people simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, well, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. That, that I mean, Beethoven, Beethoven's signature quality is his intensity, ultimately. And you feel even, I mean, what is so, I mean, that's, yes, it's one of the great moments for me in all of his music when that chorale theme arrives um, uh, in, the, in the last movement after that introduction. And, but even though it is somehow idyllic, it's never straightforwardly so. His music never is, you know, that always exists. And I think, um, yeah, the figuration is part of it. The pedaling is also part of it. That this, the, it's, you know, it, he makes this very unusual decision to write these very, very long pedals over that chorale, which, which you know, blur the melody, they blur over, across harmonies as well. And I think it, it adds a layer to what would otherwise maybe be a more straightforward theme, which makes it less surprising when the whole thing, I don't know if I would say spins out of control, but blows up somehow. Um, so it's like, yeah, the, the, the germ of the explosion is somehow there from the beginning, even if it is on the surface, the calm. Have one more question? Um, just sort of a question on musical technique. How do you do the um, octave glissandos in the last movement of the Waldstein. Yeah, there's a there's a great story that apparently Serkin, when he played it right before they come, he would go like that. <laughs> um, it's well, oh God, I mean, if I had to give a technical answer, as, as light of an arm as possible, but it's um, you sort of have to be very. Um, alert to the specific weight of the instrument. It's so different piano by piano. And then like just really great belief. <laughs> you just sort of say, no, it will happen. They will come out. Because I mean, that place, I mean, Beethoven's piano was so much lighter. It would, you know, it was much less of a, a you know, of a thing <laughs> to make them happen on, on his piano. But there really is no, at least with the left, there just is no choice. There's no way to play all the notes he wrote if, unless you do the glissando. So um, yeah, I just try to, Try to not think about it that much. Also, just because if you, you know, I don't know, if, you, if you're too aware of it, it becomes a little bit like a circus performer type thing. And I try to make it feel like a seamless part of the piece as much as possible. But yeah, as, as little weight and then, you know, a, a prayer to whatever God or higher being you happen to believe in. <laughs> Right. Well, I want to thank all of you for staying. Uh, after some of the following concerts, uh, these will be dialogues with, with other musicians. So that, um, I mean, I'll probably still take questions, but it'll be, um, 
more conversation between me and some other uh, people who have spent their whole lives with Beethoven, but um, it's always a pleasure to, I mean, obviously, go, it probably goes without saying that this music is like one of the most meaningful things in my life and just getting to share it with people is uh, on as many levels as possible is a, is a great joy. So thank you so much.